So as I said, I didn't know a thing about grapevines whenever we moved into this house. And actually for the first uh, little bit we moved here, they were doing pretty poorly. As a matter of fact, they were overgrown and crowded. And actually these are still fairly overgrown because I didn't do what I needed to do this year, but that's beside the point. They are actually still doing fairly well. And if you want to take a little look, we've got some stuff coming in, which is really, really neat. We've got some nice looking ponds. We've got some nice little bunches, which is exciting. Uh, which is really, you know, hopefully this year we can get some, maybe some grapes. Hopefully this year we can get some jam or some jelly, make it ourselves. And just in general, have a good crop. Now, here's the interesting thing too. Last year, my father-in-law, who knows a whole lot more about this than I did, came down and he actually helped me prune them. Uh, so last year, they did a little bit better. They hadn't been taken care of for a while. This year, I didn't prune them. John, if you're watching, I'm sorry I failed. I didn't prune them, and I really haven't done anything with them. But yet, they're doing great. They're doing really well. I think we're going to actually have a fairly good crop this year. I have no idea why. But the thing is, is that, especially having been out here a little bit more, when I see that the grapevines have done this, when I see that, wow, look at these clusters we're getting, look at how it's growing, it makes me want to learn more about how to do it because I see something. I see something happening. I see something that's growing. I see something that, wow, this could, this could sustain us. This could, this could be really neat. I have no idea what's going on. In fact, I even haven't done anything. But I want to know more about how to because as well as they're doing, it's just a simple fact. Imagine if I had taken care of them. Imagine if I take care of them next year. Imagine even if I start really paying attention to them now. And I'm not admitting this as like, hey, look at me. I don't do anything and I'm, stuff pops up around me. No. I have a, uh, what's the combination of, of black and, and, and green? Probably like a, a deep, deep, deep olive thumb. It's, I don't grow things very easily. What I'm saying is that it's amazing. Just a little care. And it makes me, the point is it makes me want to learn how to care for these things more because if they can do what they're doing without some care imagine what they could do with some care and if all i did and if this is the result of simply pruning a year ago and how that impacted it imagine if i could learn how to care for them weekly or monthly or daily whatever they need to create the best environment for them to grow the point is i don't know and the point is, I really can't influence them to an extent. They're going to grow or not. They've grown without me. They might not have grown without me. But I can do something about it. But I need to learn how. Maybe as I said some of that, you hearken back to some parables that Jesus had said. You might look back ahead and realize that in Mark 4... Verse 26, Jesus said, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. <laughs> Me too. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear, or in this case, the bud, then the pod, then the seed, then, you know, however, however you want to put it. When the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. I think of that every time I see these grapes, and I think of, you know, Jesus being the true vine, and we are the, the branches, but, but that's a little going off. 
Maybe you thought of that parable, or maybe you think of other ways that stuff happens in the world, or maybe in the church, or in the kingdom. We're getting ahead in the sermon a little bit. About things you see, and it makes you ponder them, it makes you ask questions, it makes you want to learn more. I'll just come right out and say it. Spoiler alert. That's the point of this sermon. We are beginning today a six-week journey into looking at parables. And not just looking at parables as in I'm going to sit here, pick a parable, and teach you about them. Not that that's a bad thing. But I want to spend the first week or two, or maybe even three, I don't know how long it'll take, maybe even reframing some of what we think about parables, their point, purpose, and especially how we read them. Well, the obvious question is, to start, what is a parable? Well, Dictionary.com says a parable is a short allegorical story designed to illustrate or teach some truth, religious principle, or moral lesson. Cool. That is indeed how the word is described now. It's to take something that's unclear or not persuasive and make it more understandable, more persuasive. There's a term for this in literature called explainer stories. It explains something so that way you can understand it, that way you can you can be persuaded in something, that way it can, you know, it takes something abstract and, oh, focus it in, I see. There's a problem with that, though, and, that, and that's that the dictionary reflects how words are used now, as opposed to were used. You see... Words change meaning over time, believe it or not. I hope many of you know this. If not, you should know this. Words change based on usage. And so actually the dictionary, whenever it's put out, and it's only put out every so often, it's like every 50 or 60, 70 years, something like that, because words change. And they take all that time to look at linguistics, think about how words are used, and that becomes the definition. For example, one of my words that I actually use quite a bit, and I don't know why I use this as an example. I think I saw it in a movie I like. I don't know what movie, uh, is the word presently. I'll be there presently. It used to mean uh, in a short amount of time, meaning 5, 10, you know, I'll be there presently, meaning I'll be there in a few minutes. Now it actually means I'll be there right now. I could have that backwards. That was off the cuff. Someone check me and, uh, and find out for yourself. It changes meaning. And especially over the, and that's uh, presently is actually only a couple hundred years old. Especially over the course of hundreds or even thousands of years, things change. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar, or Hebrew scholar, or any scholar for that matter. But many of us know that the Greek words used in the New Testament and the Hebrew words or Aramaic and such used in the Bible are not the same meanings that we have now, which is why lexicons and concordances are so important. Sometimes they can get us in trouble, but sometimes we need to know it. Is that how Jesus was teaching with parables? Is that what Jesus was doing with parables? Was that the reason he said parables? Now, some of us might immediately say, yes. I want to read the dictionary.com definition again. A short allegorical truth. Now, real quick, if you don't know that word, allegory means that something in the story stands for something else directly. So, um, I just went blank. I had an allegory prepared. And it went, it just left my mind. It's if I were to say that one, you know, if my kid says, tell me a story, and this is the fifth time that he's come out 
and I want him to go to bed. Once upon a time, a little doggy was scared, and the little doggy came to his daddy, and the daddy said, son, there's nothing to be afraid of. Go back to your doghouse, and the little puppy left. Now, he may not get that, but you may see it's allegorical. The little puppy's him, the big puppy's me. It's a metaphor allegory for you need to go to bed. That's how the dictionary defines it. We don't find that with every parable. In fact, it's dangerous <laughs> with every parable because an allegory is only an allegory if the person saying it says it's allegory. Otherwise, you could put any meaning in there whatsoever. We also know that that's not what Jesus was doing. Designing to illustrate or teach some truth, religious principle, moral lesson. That's not what Jesus was doing. Now, you may disagree, but the thing is, I just said it's for understanding, right? People often went away more confused after the parable. And Jesus actually wasn't very, wasn't very preoccupied with clearing it up. Now, some may say, well, because uh, they were meant to confuse those who didn't have pure heart and such. You know, I don't, I, they're simple stories. But the meaning and the application was indeed confused by some people, not because he was trying to speak in some secret code necessarily. And actually, even in Mark 4, they're not always clear. He says that they may indeed see but not perceive, may indeed hear but not understand, unless they turn and be forgiven in Mark verse four, Mark chapter 4, verse 12. Now there's a reason for that. It wasn't because Jesus was speaking in some secret code, but there's a reason for that. So the dictionary.com version of that definition is not what Jesus was actually doing with his parables. In fact, they were more confused. Sometimes it wasn't clear. He had to ask clarification. Certainly not allegorical. And here's the thing, actually. That, principle, that definition said that oftentimes it was to teach moral lessons. Well, in some parables... There's some sin going on. There's some dishonesty going on. And the dude or the person gets away with it. And Jesus doesn't say, now don't be like this boy. The parable cuts off. We'll get into some of those. That's why I don't want to talk about it right now. So what was Jesus doing? What was Jesus' purpose with the parables? Was he explaining something? No, not necessarily. Jesus, I want to posit to you, was not explaining the kingdom of God or helping us necessarily understand it, but first and foremost to experience it, to experience the kingdom of God. To experience the kingdom of God and to very viscerally and literally, right in front of the people's eyes, bring the kingdom of God into the present reality. Now, we've talked a little bit in some sermons. Maybe not all of you have been listening to me and maybe some of you have forgotten. Sometimes I can't remember what I preached last week. I, I know, it's hard. We've talked a little bit about what an inaugurated eschatology means. Now, those are two big words. It's very simple. What that means is to bring the future promise and hope of God having put things right and bring that into the now. 
That's what Jesus is as the Son of God and Savior. That's what we are supposed to be. That's what the kingdom is supposed to be. The future reality, the future hope, the future promise of what the world, what God's reality looks like when he puts everything right now. That's the comma there. When he puts everything right, comma, now. It's what the church is supposed to be. So we're not, a lot of the time, but we're supposed to be. So how do parables do this? How does Jesus use the Word of God, both what he knew and then what he taught, Word of God meaning Old Testament and what he taught, what would become most of the Gospels, like that? Well, we have to recognize that first and foremost, how Jesus uses parables to teach his disciples is not how we use them to teach ourselves. We tend to use them as we look at it and we ask, what does this tell me about me? What does this tell me about humanity? What does this tell me about church? What does this tell me about God? What does this tell me about what I need to do to be righteous? What does this tell me how I need to act in the kingdom? We look at them and we look for answers. And there are answers. I'm not trying to say this is black and white, um, right, left, you know, just, just binary. There is some overlap here, but I'm talking about the primary purpose. We use that primarily for parables, like we use maybe, unfortunately, the rest of Scripture. We look at it and we want to know the answer about what to do, how to live, what to be. And that's not all bad. But it's not how Jesus used Scripture or parables. It's actually not how most of history has used scripture, but that's for another sermon. <laughs> well, it's not like how we use it now. Let's illustrate this for a minute. Let's imagine, and even close your eyes if you need to, let's imagine that you are a first century Jew. You're a farmer. You have land. You lead a very simple life. You don't have much education. You have a family to take care of. And you have horses, you have donkeys, you have stables, you have chickens, and you have, you have things that provide you food, but you live off the land. You're agrarian. Your money is made of what you can sell or what you can trade. You go to synagogue, you have community with other Jews. You know you have this history of your ancestors of being brought out of the promised land and you know the promises of God that he will bring a Messiah to bring about the kingdom of God through you and your people. Now imagine for a moment that as you go into the market in first century, as you go into the marketplace, you're reminded of the current state of Israel when a Roman guard walks behind you, maybe even hits you a little bit. You look back and he just kind of sneers you off. You look around at the temple and you see the Roman houses close by and you know that the temple is somehow connected with the Sadducees and Pharisees. You're afraid that the imperialism of Rome has not only taken over your immediate physical place, but maybe even taken over Roman heritage. You are pining. You are wishing for the Messiah to come and change all of that, and put Israel where it belongs as the powerhouse of the world. The chosen ones through which the world may come to know God by, of course, being glorified and being at the top of the world and a Messiah on the throne that all nations may bow. 
You're walking through the marketplace and you see a crowd gathered. And you see a crowd around a young teacher and, and obviously as a, as a Jew, you're very interested in, in rabbis' interpretations of scripture. You walk over and you hear this. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, and the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Maybe your first thoughts is, whatever this rabbi is, he's kind of boring because that's kind of my life. I know about seeds. I know about mustard seed. I know about grain and I know about this. I know about that. I, that's my life. You don't need to tell me, a farmer, how to plant. And you walk on and you do your business and you come home to your family and your spouse asks you, how was your day? And you say, you know, I, 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 I listened to this rabbi today and he said the craziest thing. He said that the kingdom of God is like, it's like you and me. So we go out and we scatter our seed. And, uh, and we don't know how it comes up, and the earth produces, you know, sometimes it doesn't, and, and it, it does its process, and when it's ready, you know, we harvest it. Your spouse is like, that's it? He's like, yeah, that's it. It's not, you know, not as exciting as I thought. Oh, he also said that he's like a mustard seed, you know, small, but then from that huge thing comes this big old thing that birds uh, can nest in and, and all that. Now, stop for a moment with this picture. The parables are simple, and so this you, or this gentleman, or lady, was able to go back and most likely be able to remember them, because not only are they stories, but they're very simple. They're simple things that related to his life. So they're very simple. It's not like he went home and recited, well, the preacher said, the, the sermon was this, and point one, point two, point three, in conclusion, and here are the sources and everything like we tend to do it. He went home and said, you know, he said the kingdom's like, like growing, growing grain. Kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Huh. They were able to get the point. They were able to repeat them. And they were able to relate them. Now just imagine for a moment. That you go on and you tell your spouse about, you know, that Roman guard, he knocked me in the back and then he sneered at me. He didn't even say, I'm sorry. I cannot wait for the Messiah to come and get rid of all these imperial goons, uh, to get rid of all the Romans and just, and just make things right. <laughs> Israel. Buddy. <coughs> sorry, never know what's going to happen when you preach outside. The dogs wanted to preach too, apparently. So you can't wait for Rome to be vanquished as it were and for god to finally come and set things right and you just can't wait you're waiting for this big geopolitical event for the messiah to come for things to be to be put back into the what you perceive to be the right balance and you go to bed 
the next morning you're up as planting season you start throwing grain into the ground trying to sow it and you throw it into the ground cover it up and it's out of your control and you think back to that rabbi who said the kingdom of God is like this the kingdom of God is like this and you begin to dwell on it and you begin to think that when I go to bed tonight when I rise tomorrow I'll keep doing it that it'll do what it will it'll sprout or not but the earth will do what it will and when it does sprout it'll sprout in order first the blade then the ear and the full grain you've seen this a thousand times but you sit there and begin to think the kingdom of god is like that and then when it's time when it's ripe you put in the sickle because the harvest has come the kingdom of god is like that what was that rabbi talking about and it begins to percolate the more the more green you plant the more that you sow and then the harvest comes and as you swipe with your sickle you think the kingdom of God and then as a Jew you begin to think about the fact that in the Old Testament Actually, in Isaiah 55, which I didn't have marked, so let me turn there real quick. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, Isaiah writes, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and I shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. I, even Isaiah talked about that. And you begin to think, maybe the kingdom is something which will happen. It'll grow. I, don't, I won't know how. And you begin to think about, that may frustrate you, but then you may begin to think about, I don't know how the kingdom will come. Oh, I don't know how this, this grass grows either, but it will. The grain grows, but it will. I don't know how the kingdom will come, but it will. You'll come in order. What order is the kingdom? How will I know the harvest? And you begin to think about what the parable means. And then you begin to think, mustard seed. Well, these seeds are tiny. And yet amazing things can come from them. You know, Daniel had a dream about a bird. You begin to connect dots. Now, for some of you, this exercise may seem too obvious. Be like, well, yeah, of course that's what you do. What's the point? Here's what I'm suggesting. That's the point. What 
What if that's the point? I want to illustrate this because in Matthew, in Matthew chapter something, chapter 10, I believe, I had it marked, but apparently it fell out. Oh, there it is. Ha <laughs> ha. Matthew chapter 8. I apologize. In verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Wouldn't it be easier, Jesus, for you to just say, Oh yeah, come on there. No, not right now. It would. It would be a lot easier. It would be a lot clearer. But instead we have a little mini parable. Foxes have holes and birds there have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What's the natural question that the listener is forced to ask? Because Jesus did not give him a yes or a no. What's the natural question? Do I like being a fox or a bird? No, well, maybe. Bird. Question is, he's saying, what he's saying? Well, first of all, I have to ask what he's saying. He's saying the Son of Man is going to be traveling on, he's going to be up and going. There might not be much rest. Am I willing to not have much rest and follow Jesus? Am I willing to be constantly uprooted and follow Jesus? You see, that's the point. At least what I'm proposing. That's the point. And don't miss it. That's the point. God and Jesus and the Spirit, and this is <laughs> this is frustrating to a lot of us. This is really frustrating to a lot of us. But God and Jesus and the Spirit, they're not very interested in giving us all the answers. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Even to biblical questions. They're not really interested in giving us all the answers. But what God is interested in is prompting within those who seek him the desire to learn more about him, about what he's doing, and about what it takes to grow closer to him. You see, that's what the phrase, let those who have ears let them hear, means. It's not, hey, everyone should listen to this. Oh, go, that, that's true. The phrase says, he who has ears let him hear, is that for those who have ears for this, you listen, and you listen well, you take it to heart. You see, even with what I was just doing, I'm going to meddle for a minute, so be ready for it. Even with what I was just doing, how many of you got tired in the middle of it and was like, well, this guy just get to the point. I don't have time for this. What's the point of what he's saying? Get to the end. Give me the answer. Come on. I don't. How many of you did that? Jesus is saying, for those who have ears for what I'm saying, Listen, because not everyone's going to have ears for what I hear. They're going to hear what I have to say and go, that's dumb. It's confusing. It doesn't mean anything to me. It's just a story. But for those who have ears for what Jesus is saying, Jesus wants those who are listening to go, all right, what does that mean? Not just, not just what does it mean to me, but what are you, what are you saying? kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So, so the kingdom the kingdom may not be a lot of big stuff. Am I looking for big stuff? The kingdom of God is like a farmer sowing seed 
well, that's just a normal everyday life. Are you are you are you are you saying that that the kingdom is just like what we do? Parables are designed not to answer questions, but to prompt questions. Part of their function was to puzzle people, not to confuse them and exasperate them, not to the point of, of Jesus drawing people away or, or pushing people away by saying, will this guy ever just make a point? Although he did that with some people, have you noticed? But to say things in a way, not in code, but in such a way as to invite questions and invite a dialogue. Invite people to say, I hear you. I understand what you're saying, but what do you mean? Over the next six weeks, we're going to delve deeper into this. This isn't a starter sermon. <laughs> the beginning sermon, intro sermon. And hopefully it's enough to wet your whistle a little bit and make you ask the question about how do I read parables? What is my favorite parable? Why is it? I want to leave you with this question. What if the best way to study parables is not the way we usually do? What is the way we normally do? We usually ask, what does this teach me about me, about my relationship with God, about the church, about how to act, how to live, what to do? It's interesting. Whenever Jesus wants to teach morals or ethics, he goes to the Sermon on the Mount. Whenever Jesus wants to explain the kingdom, he uses parables. And so maybe our question that we ask should be, what is this parable telling me about Jesus and his bringing of God's kingdom into now? What is this telling me about God's perfect future, about God's perfect promises, and how they come to now, first in Jesus and his church and me as a believer and follower in Christ? Let me end with one that's very familiar. The story of the Good Samaritan. Now we know this one, but I will turn to it and read it regardless. I put my Bible on my I knew that was coming. Why did I put my Bible away? I believe I also did not mark this one. So if you know it, please feel free to yell it at the TV or the computer screen, and I will try to, there we go, Luke 10, just as you yelled, I know. <laughs> this is a little bit long. I'm not going to answer everything, but I want to end with this. And behold, a lawyer stood to him to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But then he, desiring to justify himself to Jesus, asked, And who is my neighbor? Now, Jesus, if he followed the way we tend to do Bible study, tend to do things, tend to answer things, would have said, well, who's closest to you? Who lives next to you? Would have might be gone through the sin? Well, who he doesn't. Notice what he does. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell among robbers. They stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to his inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Now notice that the man doesn't even say the Samaritan. Samaritan was a bad word to a Jew, and to be like a Samaritan was an insult. So he says, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. In essence, Jesus says, you be like that Samaritan. Which was an insult, as I said. Jesus took something and <laughs> turned it upside down. I want to take the last two minutes of this sermon. And I want you to think and dwell on. Yes, we've heard many sermons about this. We've heard many things exegeted about this passage. What does this parable tell us about who Jesus is and how he brings about God's kingdom? And we will delve more into that over the next five weeks.